0: Matthew 5:31, Jesus is speaking. He says, It was also said: Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, we're going to talk about that. Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, already you know that the intensity level that Jesus gave in those two verses um, is is really distinguished from how really most of us in, in America view this issue of divorce. But is that all the Bible says? Because if that's all it says, it feels really condemning. It feels like, you know, some fire and hell, uh, hell, brimstone and fire preacher, you know, screaming at people that have been divorced, adulterer, adulterer, and that's not the heart of the Lord. But we also can't dismiss what Jesus just said. So on one hand, you've got the reality that we know the heart of the Lord is not condemnation and accusation. As a matter of fact, if you sense accusation tonight about your divorce, I can promise you it's not the Lord. I can promise you it's actually the enemy accusing you to try to take you back to a a moment of pain and failure in your life to try to get you to self-identify there. The Lord doesn't do that. But nor does the Lord look at us and say, eh, it's no big deal. And so we really have to think biblically on this, and Jesus and the Apostle Paul in the New Testament are really the only two voices that speak to this. And so we'll use a little bit of that, and they're the voice of the Father from uh, uh, a couple of passages in the Old Testament. So let, let's just start with another more expanded teaching of Jesus from Matthew 19 on the subject. So we're exiting the Sermon on the Mount for a moment, and up on the screen you'll, you'll have this passage from Matthew 19. It says that Pharisees, those were the religious bullies, they came up to Him, came up to Jesus, and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer... commits adultery. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives this strong word that when an individual gets divorced and marries another, there is the sin of adultery occurring. And then at the end of his ministry, he says the same thing. So immediately, I remember first studying this as a new believer and as a pastor having to know you know, what does the scripture say as you counsel couples, um, I remember just thinking, good night alive, man, this is intense, and yet um, I heard it preached, taught, and communicated by other leaders and other Christians in so many different ways. I finally just got mind-boggled, and I was just like, God, I know you didn't put this out there as a riddle to confuse us. It's already a painful enough topic. What's the truth on this thing? And so to the best of my ability tonight, I want to give you... The truth of this. So first of all, I'm going to start with marriage. And you'd think I'd not have to do that, but we're in the 21st century in the United States of America, and even the church needs a refresher regularly on what God says constitutes a kingdom marriage, a marriage that He can say amen to. And so in this Matthew 19 verse, let me give you Matthew 19.4, and it's just what we read. So they ask Him, the Pharisees say, Are we allowed? Is it lawful to divorce our wives for any reason? And so Jesus' answer is Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What is he talking about here? He's talking about the, it's a big word, exclusivity. Of marriage. Here is the exclusive way that God defines marriage. It excludes every other defini- uh, definition of marriage by any other person. What is it? From the beginning, God created male and female, and then in a moment we're going to see that he brought them together. Now, I, I know that this isn't politically correct, and I hope you know that I don't give a rip. I, I do not care. I I am a Christian. I'm a Bible preacher and teacher. I'm not here to soften things or to make things harder than they need to be. I just need to speak the truth. And it's not that I don't care about people that are struggling with the issue. What I don't care about is the presumed pressure that I need to modify the biblical message in order to make people in the culture happy. Just not going to do that. And so what God says is that I, I like what Jesus says to them. So they ask him the question, Can we get rid of our wives for any reason? That's what they're actually asking. And Jesus says, haven't you read your Bible? He says that to these big, bullied, kind of religious leaders. Haven't you read your Bible? Have you not read in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve? You remember that, fellas? That's kind of what he's insinuating there. So he points them back to the scriptures to answer the question of divorce, which is what I'm doing with you here tonight. And just very clearly... Marriage, as defined by God, has been, Jesus said, from the beginning up till Jesus' day, and God has not changed His mind in the last 2,000 years, that marriage is exclusively um, heterosexual. It is male and female. Now, the culture and society, they can say whatever they want, but Christians, we can't. We have an obligation to define marriage as God defines marriage. Now, also, he mentions the permanency of marriage. The next couple of verses, Jesus says this, Therefore a man will leave his father and his mother, and he will cleave. I like the King James word there. They they have hold fast, which is the same thing, to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus gives a word of instruction. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so in Jesus' day, ladies, I don't know if you know this, it was illegal for a woman to divorce her husband. A woman could never divorce her husband. And a man, according to the traditions that had come into Judaism at that day, the traditions were a man, especially from the sect of the Sadducees, which were a little bit more liberal in their theology and their interpretation of the scriptures, a man could leave his wife for anything. If she turned 35, which in that day was old, and up comes an 18-year-old that he decides he likes better, he can write her a divorcement. That was the tradition today. She can never leave him. There are, there are extra-biblical writings that indicate that there, have been, there were occasions where uh, some of the rabbinic tradition, the tradition of the rabbis, where if a woman burned his breakfast, that he could divorce his wife. It was so lopsided. And so Jesus is being asked by these guys who protect those kind of traditions, who love the imbalance in the scales because it always tilted in their favor. Jesus asked them, hey, do you know your Bible? And he says, God established marriage to be permanent. You leave your first love. What is your first love? That is your initial love, your parents, your family love. You leave them and you cleave, you become one with your spouse, and from that moment on, your spouse is your greatest priority and you are their greatest priority. That's God's design for marriage. If you're single in the room, I want you to know, as you pray about a spouse, that's what you're getting into. You're getting into that immediately on day one, that woman or that man becomes your number one priority. It is you and her or you and him against the world. And anything that threatens that marriage is the enemy of your soul. That's how militant it is, and sometimes it does seem like things in the world are coming against you, your spouse, and your marriage, but God says this, you're not even your own anymore. Paul would write later on, he would literally say this, 1 Corinthians 7, he would say, uh, to husbands, your, your body belongs to your wife. Wives, your body belongs to your husband. Don't stay apart from each other in marital intimacy for too long. Give yourselves to each other except for times of prayer and fasting lest you be tempted for your lack of self-control. And so we literally relinquish our bodies to our spouse. Now that doesn't mean there's any call for abuse or domination or anything like that when it comes to the marriage bed. It needs to be mutually agreed upon whatever takes place there. You didn't come for a sex ed course tonight but I'm just telling you that, that we're not saying that you don't have a right to say no sometimes. But the, the teaching here is that there is a spiritual union that happens in the, marital, uh, the marriage bed, in the intimacy of marital sex, and Jesus says here, y'all are no longer two, but you have become one, and the one flesh also has the application of uh, most, most couples being able to bring one flesh, a child, into the world, but God views it as permanent. You leave your family, you leave your first family, and you make a new family, and so I will say this, in-laws, they can be awesome and they can be not so awesome. But I'm going to tell you something, husbands and wives, your parents do not get to have that much influence on your marriage. There may be a time where you actually have to say to mom and dad, hey, knock it off, step off, be quiet. We don't need that. I hope that never happens, but that's how intense it is about being one flesh in the permanency of marriage. Now, I want to talk to you just briefly about the severity of divorce using an Old Testament passage, which... Uh, You might be familiar with. Um, Pardon me. I'm just going to say it like the scriptures teach it. God hates all sin, right? Yes? I want to take a vote on that? (laughs) He hates all sin, and so don't get shocked when the Bible says that God hates divorce, and don't be upset when we term divorce as a sin, and I'm going to help you walk through that in just a moment. Let me give you Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. It should be up on the screen. Malachi writes, and the Lord is speaking through Malachi. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom, he's speaking to the men here, to whom, your wife, you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Now watch this, verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So here's the instruction. Guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Uh, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Again, God was speaking to the men because the women in their culture could not divorce their husbands. So, if a divorce took place, it was always the man. And what God is doing is He's coming against this flippancy of men that were willing to abandon their wives for any reason, leaving the woman helpless. Because the women typically didn't work, they didn't earn the income, and if a man was done with her, she not only lost her husband, but she lost her home. Sometimes she lost her children. And so, the anger of God towards this kind of lovelessness and dismissiveness of somebody that you're in covenant with, God speaks very strongly against. He even indicates this rarely talked about factor in verse number 15. He said, did God not make the two one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? So, I know we don't see it visibly per se, but literally, I'll just use my marriage, my marriage consists of amy and jeff and the holy spirit amy and jeff and the holy spirit and so for me to walk away from my wife is to grieve the holy spirit who is the seal in that relationship between me and my wife and it's the same way in every other marriage and i'm primarily talking to christians this is It's more than a Christian ethic, but it is almost impossible to try to apply this ethic to those that don't know Jesus. I've said it before, and I'm not being flippant, but I, I I don't know how unsaved people who do not have the Holy Spirit stay married for 20, 30, 40 years. What in the world? You talk about an awesome display of willpower because anybody that's been married in this room over two years knows there are times where you're like, "Who is this person that I've married?" Y'all are afraid to say amen, but I'll say it for you. And 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 listen, there can be some really rough patches in Christian marriage where at times the only thing that holds those two Christians together is the fact they made a vow before the Lord, and that's why God asks us to make vows. It's because he knows, yeah, there's coming a day where if you don't have a vow to me, you will walk away at the first possible chance. And so the Lord enters into that with us. I want you to remember that in your marriage, no matter what season you're in in marriage, I want you to remember that the Lord is in the marriage with you. And it's not just separating or walking away from a spouse, it is literally breaking a union that the Holy Spirit has a seal on. So we're going to go back to Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and I'm going to give you... Um, a heavy statement, and then we're going to break it down. I'm going to actually give you some real practical stuff in a minute. I'm giving you kind of the theology of, of the biblical view of marriage, divorce, and remarriage here, so, but then I'm going to apply it. So in Matthew 5.31, we're going to find out that divorce usually results in the sin of adultery. It doesn't have to always. If both partners stay abstinent the rest of their life, not necessarily, but in Matthew 5.31, here we go again whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And then Jesus says, but I say to you. In other words, the traditional view of the law says, yeah, if you're going to divorce your wife, you've got to obey the letter law. Just give her that writing certificate and then you're free and clear. What Jesus is doing is he's raising the heart level on this thing. He's saying, no, it's not about a matter of a signed document. He says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, watch this, except on the grounds... Of sexual immorality, you ought to put a flag right there, because Jesus is making a concession here that I'm going to talk to you about in a minute. But in the absence of that con- uh, uh, concession, he says this, anyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So here's where we get into the marriage-divorce-remarriage. Remarriage is really where the issue arises, because if two people agree to separate, they're still committing the sin of divorce because they're breaking a vow that they made to each other and they made to God. And I'm not unsympathetic about the challenges of marriages and how you just can't feel like you can stay. I get that, but I'm talking to you theologically for the moment. That in essence, you strip everything else away and you have the breaking of vows to God and to each other, which is a sin. Now I'm going to show you in a minute, it's not a perpetual sin. You're not cursed the rest of your life. You're not walking around with you know, the scarlet letter A on your, on your, on your, you know, your lapel. But the reality is, is that divorce in and of itself is a sin, but the adultery piece comes in when somebody moves on from that divorce and they find a new partner. And so Jesus gives it in the context of remarriage. And his words are very clear that when somebody that is divorced remarries, and I'm going to give you two concessions to this rule in a minute, but outside of these two concessions, this is the theology. It is a sin, and those remarriage, that, that remarriage union becomes an instance of adultery. Now, it's not happy, it's not good, but I want you to remember something. I'm going to give it here in detail in a minute. What I'm not saying is that a person who is remarried commits adultery every time they're with their spouse. You're not going to hear that from me. And unfortunately, that has been propagated in churches. In other words, it's the perpetual unpardonable sin. And that is heresy. At the, at the worst, it's heresy. At the, given the benefit of the doubt, it's just really poor teaching. Because the Bible says much about the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all manner of sin. So let's 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 walk through this a little bit more again. Matthew 19. I'm, I'm doing this on purpose. You say, Jeff, you already did these verses. I'm doing it on purpose. Listen to what Jesus said when they talked about the writing of the the written letter of divorcement, which or divorce. You can find that, by the way, in Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24, first maybe eight verses, talk about uh, what was prescribed when somebody was going to get divorced. So remember, they asked the question. Can we divorce our wives for any reason? Jesus says, no. And then Jesus says, uh, and then they said, well, why did Moses command us to give her a letter of divorce? Isn't that bad? I mean, basically, that's the guy who blames God for his sin. And 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 so they're turning in Moses, they're turning Deuteronomy 24 into a command that when you're ready to get divorced, all you've got to do is just sign the letter. And you've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got a clean conscience and a clean slate. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus says this He says, From the beginning, it was not so. It's the hardness of your heart Moses allowed you, not commanded you. It's not mandated, but it was permitted under the law in certain circumstances. And so he says, If that's going to happen, here's what Moses did Moses, under the inspiration of God, wrote in Deuteronomy 24, and it's peppered in other places in the Old Testament. He says, this is the process. Now, you got to remember, Old Testament marriages were, were less about um, love stories and more about legal transactions because a dad had a 16-year-old girl, and that's about when they got married back then, and some 20-year-old dude uh, loved the 16-year-old girl. So the 20-year-old dude goes to his parents and says, well, you talk to uh, you know, Mr. So-and-so. I'd like to marry his daughter. So his parents come to this man, and says, our son wants to marry your daughter, and then they begin to talk about this thing called a dowry. And so in other words, if the price is right, that was the culture by the way of for women. People people accuse Christianity of suppressing women. It was Jesus Christ and his followers that liberated women that freed women from this kind of practice that is still going on in other religions and other regions of the world, but that's for a different time. So the young lady, it's it's an arranged marriage. We're all familiar with that, that topic. So the young lady would be given to this guy she doesn't know. It's commitment and vows first, love later maybe. So not the best setup for the lady. But in order for that transaction to be broken, a legal letter had to be signed, a writing had to be signed, it would go through a process. And what it does is Deuteronomy 24 gives multiple opportunities as that divorce process is being played out, gives a lot of opportunities for the man to think about what he's actually doing. Instead of him just saying, I'm done with her, here comes... Sports Illustrated lady walking down the street. I think I want to be with her. Thank you for the last 15 years. Will you take the kids and go? It's a little bit of a stretch, but not really. That's how it plays out a lot today. So Jesus said, no, it was because of your hard heart. Here we go. No condemnation here. I'm talking about now and moving forward. Somewhere in divorce, somebody gets a hardened heart that can't be softened anymore towards their spouse. That's just what happens. And I'm not the arbiter of those things. I'm not here to tell you who messed up in your marriage. I, I couldn't begin to know. I just know how it works. I've done enough counseling and divorce counseling and counseling with kids to know that it always starts with a hardening of the heart that nobody paid attention to. So more of the heart gets hardened. And then more of the heart gets hardened And then all of the heart gets hardened and it won't go soft again. And then somebody says, I can't do this anymore. So Jesus attributes divorce to a hardening of our heart towards the one to whom we made our vows. But again, watch this. There's two concessions. There are two, I don't know the the best way to say it, but there are two biblical doorways Through which an individual may walk to have a biblical divorce. I'm not telling you you should, I'm telling you you may. You are allowed. Now, we have to know what those two reasons are, and one of them we've already talked about. Um, Concession number one, when we're going to talk about what God has conceded concerning marriage divorce, let me give you concession number one. It's very simple. It's sexual immorality on the part of the husband or wife. And it's in both of the passages that I just read. It's that phrase, except for sexual immorality. So it raises the question. We do have young ears in here, so I'm going to be as as discreet as I can. Sexual immorality translates the Greek word porneia. What word do you hear in that? Porneia. We hear porn. And the Bible doesn't actually specify it's only this and it's never this. It's actually referred to in ways that leave the reader, the student, understanding it's any type of sexual immorality, sexual activity outside of the bounds of a heterosexual marriage. And it doesn't necessarily have to involve full-blown intercourse. It can be a whole host of things. It can be, I believe by application, unrepentant, Pornography abuse. It can be that. It can be the full-blown other end of the spectrum where somebody steps out on their spouse, enters into a physical relationship with somebody they're not married to. That is adultery. It can involve a whole host of things that I'd prefer not to talk about, but here's the best way to define it. Any activity outside of intimacy between the husband and wife that is not repented of, It doesn't mean, okay, I repent because I got caught. I'm talking about heartfelt biblical repentance. I never advise somebody, I I never have, where somebody stepped out in a moment of weakness and failed in a moment of unfaithfulness. I've never advised their spouse, yeah, walk away. Because I believe that the God to whom they made their vow is also a God of grace, forgiveness, mercy, and redemption. And so if we're going to be like Jesus, we forgive as we've been forgiven. It doesn't mean there won't be a whole host of difficulties, but it does mean this. I'm not telling you that you should impulsively walk away if your spouse failed once. But I'm also not telling you that you can't. I'm not saying that you can't because that's adultery. And the Bible says that except for adultery, sexual immorality, porneia, um, you have to stay in that marriage. And so it, the only real reason I'm teaching this is not to help anybody in their potential pathway in the future in the sense of, Yeah, Jeff said back in 2019, I could walk away on this thing. That's not what I'm trying to do. What I am trying to do is tell you what the Bible says so you can understand for yourself what the Bible says about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And then as multiple situations come along throughout a marriage, you you understand what is God's heart concerning my marriage. Now, some will have, have, I'm going to address this in a minute, some will have already gone through this, divorced, married, maybe divorced multiple times, married, remarried multiple times, and, and there's, you're sitting there, and then you come to Jesus, and you're like, well, where am I on this thing? I, this was all before I was saved, and I, I don't know. Well, we're going we're gonna to help with that too. I think what I, I want you to be able to grasp is there is an intensity on this topic that you're not imagining, It's very real. Um, There's so much fallout from divorce. It it has got to be the most painful thing a man or a woman can ever go through. Then it's painful for the children in unspeakable ways. And ultimately, the only one who loves divorce is old Slewfoot himself. He loves divorce because everybody loses. Nobody wins. So concession number two. I think we understand the sexual thing. Concession number two. Abandonment by an unsaved spouse. Many people don't know this. So we're going to go to the Apostle Paul. And just because it's Paul and not Jesus doesn't mean it doesn't have authority because it's the authoritative word of God. So in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 through 15, just let me walk us through this. Paul says this, To the married I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. So he knows he's speaking the Lord's heart on this thing. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now notice there, the wife couldn't divorce her husband. She could separate for reasons, but she couldn't divorce, but the husband could divorce. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm telling you, don't do that. Verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, so what he's saying here is I am not saying that I ever heard this from the Lord. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have the authority of God on it. What Paul is doing is he's saying this. Earlier I, told, I said what the Lord has said. Right here I'm saying what I discern from the Lord although I never heard him say it. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified, is the word. He's made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. And when when you see holy, don't think justified or born again. Think set apart. Set apart, protected, covered verse 15 but if the unbelieving partner separates let it be so in such cases the brother or the sister is no longer enslaved or bound god has called you to peace i have to take time with this cuz this is important so here was the deal when paul was writing people would be married and especially in corinth which is a highly pagan culture a lot of idol worship a lot of horrible immorality attached to their religious ways. And then all of a sudden the gospel comes to them. They believe on Jesus Christ. The light goes off. They're now redeemed, born again, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And their whole world changes. They see all of these pagan idols that they used to bow down to. Those are sin. they got to get rid of them. And their whole life changes. The problem is, is when they go home, they're married to somebody who still loves all that stuff that they just got delivered from. So they're married to a pagan, but they are born again. They're saved. And so what was happening in Corinth, apparently, is people were like, well, hallelujah, I'm saved now. I can't be with you. I got a brand new life. I'm going to go on to bigger and better things with Jesus. Hope it all works out for you. And they were divorcing their spouses based on the fact that their spouse was not a believer in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, no, don't do that. He says, what you don't know is that your born-again presence in this house, in this household unit, your born-again presence actually puts sanctification, a covering, on the entire family. It doesn't mean that the unbelieving spouse is saved. It just means he or she's got it a lot better than they know. Because what happened is the presence of God just got brought into their home through their spouse who is now saved. And so the application would be this that there is a greater likelihood of their unbelieving spouse becoming a believer because of the life that is now in that person who's just gotten saved and also for the kids. And there's a covering on the home. And so you may be in here tonight and you're married to a Christian, but you yourself is not a Christian. Um, First, I would encourage you, You need to surrender to Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of glory. He's the Son of God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but He also laid down His life on the cross of Calvary as a sacrificial lamb shedding His blood for your sin that you could be absolutely absolved of those things and set free and cleansed and made into the person that God has always created you to be. Come to Jesus tonight. But if you don't, I'm just going to say this. If you want to remain an unbeliever, at least go home and thank your your spouse for being a believer because you are operating under their covering and you've got it a whole lot better than you deserve. And so there is literally a spiritual dynamic. If you're married to an unbeliever, when you are are struggling, just understand this, there may be what I call a salvific purpose. In other words, a, a purpose of God through you into your spouse's life. And so if they're not cheating on you, they're not committing adultery, they're not abusing you, then stay in that covenant. Don't leave just because they're not a believer. So say, well, Jeff, it's hard. I imagine it is. I, I imagine it's very, very difficult. Values are completely different. Aspirations are different. Treatment of one another in relationships is going to be completely a different ethic between a Christian and a non-Christian. But again, we're answering the question, what does the Bible say? I love the strength of what Paul says. If that unbelieving spouse is done, he says, let her or him walk. Let them go. And then he says this, you're no longer bound to them anymore. King James says bound. Here it says enslaved. Just think of it this way. God snapped the chain. He sovereignly allowed that person to walk away and you are no longer bound. By the way, if you're not bound, what are you? You're free. You're free. So in the, in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter number 7, which is all about singlehood, marriage, divorce, and remarriage, in the context, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. If your unbelieving spouse abandons you, you are free to be remarried with no fear of being an adulterer. I, I would add this. Um... Hmm, Second Corinthians 6? 1 Corinthians 6? One of the Corinthians 6 teaches that we're forbidden to marry unbelievers. If you're single in the room, know this. If your unbelieving spouse leaves you eventually, you are no longer bound. But if you are saved now and single, you're not to marry an unbeliever no matter what. He could be gorgeous, rich, successful, powerful, mighty, a protector, nice, super cool, but if he's unredeemed, he's off limits. Guys, she could be beautiful, she could be sweet, she could be an awesome domestic goddess, you know, I mean she could do all of those things, but if she is not saved, she's off limits for you. She's not the person. We count some young people all the time. So I, I, he's got a nice heart. I know he's not saved yet, but he's got enough. I know I'm going to win him, but if I don't marry him now. No missionary dating. No missionary dating. You don't know squat. You don't know if he'll ever get saved, but the reality is if he's pressuring you right now to marry him when he's not saved, he's definitely the wrong dude. And so, y'all, I'll send you each a bill for the premarital counseling there. But It's, it's tough, very tough stuff, but the, the clear teaching here, Nobody needs to complicate it. Is if an unbelieving spouse abandons you, walks away, wants a divorce, you let them. You don't fight for it. Now, even not fighting for it could be tough. But what I'm saying is if you choose not to fight for it and the divorce happens, you are under no biblical obligation to remain single. You have full freedom to go and remarry. So what are the two concessions? A person in unrepentant sexual immorality, which could be a hundred different things, or being, un- uh, being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. Biblically speaking, there are no other concessions. People uh, reasonably say, well, what about abuse? Let me give you, very, in a snapshot, when when somebody is being abused in any way by their spouse, I tell them vacate the area of danger immediately. Be safe, go where you can be safe. And I have seen cases where that has taken place and the spouse who had to flee the abuse as a Christian, it's almost always a woman, has decided I will not get remarried, I will not file for divorce. I will remain single, and what almost always happens is the abuser, typically the husband, will eventually file for divorce, and he will find a new person, and then he is committing adultery, and she is free. She has to wait. But she retains her integrity. And by the way, in many of those situations, a woman has zero interest in getting married again because of the abuse and what she learned from her first marriage. But I'm saying that if you wait and you do it by, you say, Jeff, that sounds like a, a legal technicality. Actually, what it sounds like is doing your best to keep your heart aligned with God's word, which is the expression of God's heart, and trusting him. It's painful and difficult and... Um, you know, horrific as it can be, I want God's blessing on me at the end of the day. I I want to go to bed tonight, and I want to lay my head down and know that I lived and am living my life in a way that invites the blessing of God. And so part of that, it's not all of that, but part of that is that I want to live according to what the Scriptures teach. And so in doing so, there's a great peace on me when trouble hits that, okay, the trouble is terrible, the pain is real, but I have been walking in alignment and obedience with my Father who loves me, therefore I go to sleep tonight knowing I'm in the will of God and it will be a brighter day eventually. And so we just press on in faith, and all of that is done by faith. All right, so I'm gonna give you now what I, it's the last thing, and it's not, it's not primarily Bible verses, it's more practical Um just kind of counsel on this thing, as a church family, um, as Christians, whether you're part of this church or not, what must we consider as believers concerning marriage and divorce? It's not going away. And we saw tonight that 95% of the people in the room have in some way been impacted by the, the, the reality of divorce. Divorce. And so I, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of commentary and then I'll, I'll stick to my notes because I thought long and hard about these. I've heard some of the most unkind words spoken about divorce in pulpits by pastors and preachers. I remember being in a Mother's Day service one time And uh, the pastor said, he had all the women stand up that were moms, and he said, I thank God for every single mother. And he goes, oh, no, not the single mothers. I thank God for the married mothers. I was young, too, man, and I remember thinking, what did you just do? The lovelessness. The lack of wisdom kindness. I've also heard teaching from people that stand in places of authority in the church that will tell somebody that is divorced that if they ever get remarried, they are a perpetual adulterer, that their subsequent marriage is in a constant state of sin. I've heard them also say the only way you can break that is to divorce your second spouse, go back to your first. Which absolutely contradicts the the law of God in Deuteronomy 24, which God forbids that. God actually forbids you from from divorcing your second spouse and going back to your first. So the reason why I'm saying this is there's a lot of confusion on it because we've we've failed as a people to just stick to the simplicity of Scripture and to love one another. Love and truth. Love and truth, love and truth, love and truth. Truth motivated by love. Love never compromising truth. A type of love that compromises truth is not love, it's a form of manipulation. And so we have to be both loving, compassionate, and understanding, while at the same time not apologizing for what God has given in Revelation about this topic. To change it is to misrepresent the heart of God. So, Here's the first question that might have come up. What happens when someone is abandoned by a spouse who is a Christian, who's not an unbeliever? So that spouse abandoned, saved, the marriage gets blown up, one spouse leaves. What happens to that Christian that's been abandoned by the other spouse? It's the exact scenario I told you in the context of, of, of the abusive spouse. So if you're in a position where as a Christian your spouse has abandoned you, here's what I would counsel you to do, and I do counsel people to do this stay unmarried, wait on the Lord, pursue the Lord with all of your heart until such a time comes where you are factually aware that your ex-spouse is now physically engaged with another person, therefore constituting adultery, therefore giving you the biblical means to be remarried. I know that that sounds a little bit like a why am I having to pay for his or her mistake, or his or her sin? Why do I have to wait? Well, I'm just trying to, trying to project what the Bible says. And chances are, when a Christian decides to leave his or her spouse, they've already hardened their heart enough against the Lord, if it's not for a biblical reason, and they will step out physically with somebody more than likely. And it usually doesn't take that long. And so what you're doing is after you go through the pain of divorce, you're saying, Jesus Christ is about to be my everything. He's going to help me with my wounds. He is going to shepherd me through this painful valley that I never imagined. He is going to, he is going to be the protector of my heart. God is revealed in the Old Testament as a husband of Israel. Jesus Christ is revealed in the New Testament as the bride to the, uh, excuse me, as the groom to the church who is his bride. He knows all about being an attentive, an attentive husband and he will take care of every wound, every need and he'll shepherd you as you're going forward. If you want to be remarried, here is my counsel. My counsel is is that you wait until you know that your spouse has committed adultery. I know that sounds legalistic, but I cannot find any other biblical course of action to take. I can't say, oh, it's no big deal, go get remarried, start again. I, I, I just can't say that. But I can say that when this one of the two concessions, the concession of sexual immorality, has come to take place. Second question, practical question that comes up. Um, what are the expectations for those divorced prior to their salvation? So what happens is, you know, hey, Jeff, I got divorced like a year before I got saved or five years before I got saved or six weeks before I got saved or whatever. Um, what, what do I do now? Well, let me just give you this. The Bible's clear that when we're saved, we become wholly new creations. The old has passed away, all things are becoming new, and there's nothing in Scripture that indicates that divorce or any other sin carries over into our new life with Christ. There, there is, that's not the one piece of luggage you've got to take from your past with you. It's not, it's not biblical to say that. So, all of our sin, all of it, is washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven. We are justified before the holy bar of God. We are born anew. There's zero, by the way, for lost people, there's zero moral expectation on them. I want you to hear that. We get all offended in our culture when people sin and parade their sin and uh, you know, elevate their sin and celebrate their sin. We're like, how could they do that? The reason why is they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Let's quit being surprised at that. Now, I mean, listen, yeah, it's, it's raunchy out there. I get it. It's, it's intense out there. But people in the church that are like, I can't believe that. Well, what did you expect? What do you expect fallen people to do? Now, some people are good at moderating their sinful impulses and stuff. I wasn't, man. I tell you, before I got, I didn't get saved until I was 24, and I was like, I'm going to do what I want to do with all of my might. And um, I did. I'm not bragging about it. I'm just telling you, it would have made no sense for me to adopt a Christian ethic when I wasn't a Christian. And so, I got off track there, but I just want to tell you, prior to your salvation, there was no moral code that you were supposed to be obeying in order to gain any favor with God. He who offends in one point of the law is guilty of it all. And so, this, this reality of divorce before salvation When you're given new spiritual life in Christ, your sin record is fully purged and you begin a new life. So any shame or guilt or fear over a failed marriage prior to salvation is completely ludicrous and unnecessary. You are forgiven, that person is forgiven, free, you're called to begin a joyful, holy life as you learn to walk with Jesus by faith. And so when you come to Christ, you're free to marry. You're free to marry a Christian, you need to pray about it, you need to seek the will of the Lord, you need to wait on it, but you're free to marry. Your divorce prior to your salvation does not carry over. Um, I have a bone to pick with that on a lot of different levels, that idea. Um, yeah, I'm going to give you an example here. The, the, I remember a church in Georgia... That refused to ordain a man to ministry who had been divorced 25 years earlier when his wife ran around on him. And they would not ordain him. And in the month where they said no to him, they said yes to a guy who had been running around on his wife a few years earlier but repented. And so I'm not saying that the second guy shouldn't have been ordained if he's repented. And that's that's up to that church and those elders and case-by-case situation. But what I'm saying is the dude that was living with a girlfriend, that's what it was. He was living with his girlfriend, and then, then they had ordained that guy because he repented they got married, but he had been living with his girlfriend, but wouldn't ordain the dude from 25 years before. And it's that mixed signal that the church sends. And my thought was, The guy divorced before his salvation can't preach in that church, but the dude who was living with his girlfriend can? So again, what am I doing tonight? What does the Bible say? So third thing, you're going to get out early tonight, believe it or not. If you're here for the first time, we get out at 845, but not tonight is one who has remarried outside the bounds of lawful divorce those two concessions i gave you if you've been remarried outside apart from those two concessions are you guilty of perpetual adultery does that mean you and your new marriage is cursed with a perpetual sin happening every time physical intimacy occurs the answer is absolutely not i'm going to counsel you on this because this may apply to people in the room tonight and i've given this counsel before in in the pulpit and in private. There is no perpetual guilt for the Christian for any sin. There is no perpetual guilt. When a person is divorced and remarried for reasons other than the two concessions that I gave you earlier, I'm going to tell you, that is a sin. It is a sin to remarry outside of the biblical bounds for divorce. That specific sin could be viewed as breaking the marriage covenant to each other, or breaking the vow to God, and then committing adultery by remarrying somebody outside of the biblical allowances. Now, when those Christians who are now married to each other, even though they, they weren't married in a biblically uh, permissible way, but now they're aware of it, they get hit, oh man, our marriage to each other after our first marriages, or fr- former marriages, that... That was not biblically permissible. Oh no, I'm married to somebody that I shouldn't have been married to. What do we do? And that's a normal thought. And it, can, it, it has the potential to be an instrument of the devil in that marriage. But let me tell you what to do. It's the same thing you do with any other sin when you commit one. You get before the Lord and say, God, your spirit and your word has made me aware that I sinned. We sinned. I encourage couples to have this moment together who have been remarried outside of the biblical allowances for remarriage. Have this prayer together. Lord, we sinned when we married. God, forgive us for that. We committed a sin and forgive us for that. And Lord, we will consecrate this marriage to you tonight as being in your uh Your favor in the sense of you can bless this. We need your blessing. We want your blessing. God's not up there saying, no, I'm not going to bless that. Why? Because you've repented of the sin. You've repented of the original sin, and when you've confessed and forsaken it, it's done. So you're not living in a state of perpetual adultery or sinfulness. There's no curse on your marriage. There may be complications. Complications are not the same thing as a spiritual curse. And so what we've got to recognize in the church is that there needs to be an understanding, love, and compassion and a refusal in our individual hearts to judge people who are remarried that may be remarried in a context other than something that was biblical. And if you are in that context, listen, I've I've never regretted getting humble before the Lord. I've never regretted confessing sin to God. And it's a time where you just say, Lord, now we see what we didn't see then. Forgive us. Thank you for everything up to this point. And now, Lord, we consecrate from this point forward in a renewed way. Our married lives belong to you. And then you should go to bed that night and enjoy each other and have no guilt, no shame, no fear, no sense of, you know, icky, you know, oh man, this 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 is terrible, this is wrong. No. You've just confessed and repented. Ultimately I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you with this. I'm gonna skip the one about children. I, I think everybody knows what happens to kids in homes where um, divorce saturates. It's not insurmountable. Somebody needs to go to bat for the kids. They didn't ask for it, they didn't get a vote in it. Um, it hurts. They need to be allowed to express their hurt, their anger. Even if it makes you feel bad and guilty, that's okay. You're a big boy, you're a big girl. God will tend to your wounds, but your kids need to be able to talk. They need to be able to know that they didn't cause it. They need to be able to know that, um, you know, the spouse who is no longer in the home didn't leave because of them. You've gotta shepherd your kid's heart, even in the midst of your own pain. and. Sometimes they may be 25 years old and you still have to look at them in the eye and say, hey, I know that hurt. I know that was painful. If it could have been different, I would have done anything in my power, but I want you to know I'm your dad, I'm your mom, I love you. And you affirm them so that whatever the devil stole from them through your divorce does not generationally affect them. But here's the personal and public attitudes of believers and churches, local assemblies towards those who have been divorced. I'm just going to say it and we're going to go home. Um, I don't know if it's getting better. I really don't know. We have such a grace-based, loving, and forgiving, non-religious faith family here across the mission base, IHOP and New Bridge. So there's not really a condemning, judging spirit in, in this faith family but I can, I can tell you I've been in assemblies you know we've, I pastored the same church for since 2002 but it's changed so much when I say assemblies seasonal congregants that were there for maybe 3 years, 5 years, 7 years, 10 years and um I think the church as a whole is better off in how we interact and treat people that have gone through it um some of the most amazing people in the kingdom that I know have been divorced. And I love to just watch God anoint them and bless them and bring fruit from their lives. And I love it because it's a testimony against the religious spirit that says, well, they can't preach. They can't be up there on that platform. They can't teach. They can't be a missionary. They shouldn't be an intercessory warrior. They can't serve on staff at a church, or they, they they can't sing in the choir, or they can't, and so on and so on. Yeah, I mean, you guys know that, that there's churches in our city that will not let you participate in their stage worship music if you've been divorced. And so, while we are m- a million miles away from that here, the reality is, is that we're actually, you know, one big gigantic family of redeemed people and we've got to start seasoning our relationships with grace and our attitudes with grace. And my desire is this, as a, a pastor and a brother, I want to relieve everybody of the shame that the devil heaps on them, whether it's for sin, the sin of divorce, sin of adultery, failed marriage, or if it's for any other sin, because God never intends for his kids to operate under shame. That's not the Lord if you're living with guilt and shame about a failed marriage, I want to tell you this as we close. Um, It's not coming from the Lord. He's not mad at you. He's not up there fuming. He's not up there waiting for the next opportunity to remind you about your failed marriage. That is the voice of the enemy. Mark it down. I'm not even going to ask you to vote on it. It is true. It is the voice, it is a demonic whisper or a satanic roar in your ear that wants to drag you back and say, I'm, and say that God identifies you by your worst failure. That is the devil, and may the Lord Jesus Christ crush the head of the serpent under your feet by you believing that you're free and you're forgiven.